She's the only scripture reader I call sweetheart, so thank you, sweetheart. So I promise she's the only. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, Rob, not you. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for it. To, uh, to be together this morning and to sing to you and to uh, enjoy each other and laugh and look at your word and uh, just a way to, to um, reorient ourselves and recenter ourselves on Sunday for the coming week. But Father, we're also so, so aware of, of what's going around in the world and it just seems like sometimes these things are coming apart at the seams. Um, just violent con conflicts and um, almost sadism and cruelty and brutality. And we do just continue to pray for peace, not only of Jerusalem, but for the world. And we pray for the peace in, in this country as well. And Father, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for the, the gospel that uh, is so refreshing and, um, and so freeing. And we give the time to you this morning ask that you be the teacher and that you use the word that is inspired by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a lot of you probably know uh, who Chuck Swindoll is. Uh, Chuck Swindoll is a pastor, was a pastor in Fullerton, California uh, for years, and he had a huge, huge radio ministry uh, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And as far as I'm concerned, he is the gold standard for preaching. Uh, I just think Chuck Swindoll is it. I mean, he's the guy that I just think is one of the best. Uh, he later became president, the fourth president of Dallas Theological Seminary, where I went to school. Uh, it was after I left, but, uh, and now he, uh, I think he's passionate a church in Frisco, which is just north of Dallas. Uh, he's one of the few people who could open church doors the very first Sunday and have 20,000 people there, you know. I mean, it's just, he's, he really is amazing. Um, <clears throat> it's a really interesting. I, I, my first ministry job was in Irving, First Methodist Church in Irving. And Irving Bible Church was in the same town. It's a suburb of Dallas. And uh, actually, Chuck Swindoll used to pastor that church at Irving Bible Church. And Irving Bible Church actually fired him. And uh, so for years, for years, Irving Bible Church was the church known as the church that fired Chuck Swindoll. <laughs> And that has nothing to do with what I was going to tell you. But a uh, little bit of trivia there. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it, it, the church survived. It's thriving. It's doing, it's doing fine, you know, even though they, they fired Chuck Swindoll. Uh, but what I was going to say is that he also pastored other churches before coming to Fullerton, California. And, uh, and he was talking about a, a church that we were debating. The youth pastor wanted to show a movie to the church, to his kids. And uh, for this church was one of those churches that said, nope, you can't go to movies. You know, movies are sin. You can't do that. It, you, nobody should go to movies. You know, I, I, I even heard this when I was a teenager. You know, what are you going to do if you're sitting in a movie theater and, and the rapture comes? What are you going to tell Jesus then, you know, if you're sitting in a movie theater? And the youth pastor says, argued in the, in the elders meeting when they were debating this, he says, um, well, we have missionaries who come through all the time and show slides. And the elder, one of the elders responded, if it's still, fine. If it moves, sin. <laughs> End of discussion. That settles it, right? It, I, I tell you that story just because it seems like whenever it comes to relating to God, there's always somebody going to tell you that you're doing it wrong. 
And even if it's the true God of Israel, if it's Yahweh and, and that's, that's, your, that's your God, or maybe you know, there's other idols or things, whatever it is, regardless of, of which religion you're in, if you're Muslim or, or whatever, you're going to find people who are going to say you're doing it wrong. You know, it's not just us, you know, what I'm saying, that you know, you're, just, you're just doing it wrong. You've you're, you got to tell you how to do it. And our Old Testament has a book in it, Job, who uh, Job was suffering. A lot of us know the story about Job. And uh, he had all these friends, around, friends in, in, you know, in quotation marks, telling him, Job, it's because you're doing it wrong. You need to get it right. You need to do it right. And he kept saying, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it wrong. Until finally God tells him, and it basically it says, you know, basically the message is the righteous people sometimes suffer. And he's not the only one. We have documents, Mesopotamian documents that go back to like 1900 B.C. in, in the ancient uh, Babylonia, where we have other people saying the same thing about their God, saying, you know, what is wrong? Tell me what I did wrong. I'm suffering because I obviously did something wrong here. So tell me what it is. Help me correct it. Tell me to change my ways. But we're always saying, well, there's something that, that you're doing wrong. Well, even Jesus faced that. Even Jesus heard people saying, you're doing it wrong. Last week, we looked at Jesus' healing of the paralytic, uh, the story of the, you know, the wonderful, wonderful story, probably one of my favorite stories out of the New Testament, is where they layer this guy, the paralyzed guy, down through the, the roof of a house that Jesus is teaching at. And the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is doing is he's hitting the, he's hitting the issue straight on, right up front. And then he goes on to heal the paralytic, and, of course, the, the scribes are there. These are the, the experts of the law, and they're saying, he's doing it wrong. In fact, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins, which is a capital offense. He could go out and he could get stoned for that. But what Jesus was trying to do was trying to say, this is something new. This is the kingdom breaking in. And breaking in means there's a, there's a forgiveness of sins, which means basically it's not just saying patting on your head, saying that's okay. Just try harder next time. It is a return from the exile. It is a restoration. And everyone around him would know that he is proclaiming the kingdom is breaking in then. And a co a connected with that is the forgiveness of sins or a return to exile, from exile, a restoration with Yahweh. And so everyone knew what he was talking about. And they said, you're doing it wrong. And then he goes out and he calls Levi, a tax collector, to come follow him. That's even worse. And I kind of connected those two together last week because I, thought, I think that story with Levi sort of drives home the point of what Jesus is getting at. And I kind of divided it, even though this verse 15 is sort of what they call a hinge verse, it kind of looks backwards and it also looks to the next section. That's what this verse 15 does. It looks to the next section where we have three questions posed to Jesus. They, they, they come from and they confront him with three different questions about who he is and what he's doing wrong. And so that's kind of what I titled this. The Pharisees are telling them, you're doing it wrong. What you're doing wrong is the company you keep, first of all. What you're doing wrong are the traditions you keep or lack of. And the third question is the rules you keep. What you're doing wrong is the rules that you keep. And all these things goes, goes wrong, going wrong. And, it's all, and then Jesus comes back and answers them, but he also tells them, you know, who he is and what this means to us. And what the Pharisees are getting at, it's when they, when they say you're doing it wrong, 
My question is, what's it to them? Why is it important to them that he's doing it wrong or right or wrong? Why is it, so, why is it such a big deal? Is it just because they want to stick their nose in other people's businesses? The reason is, and this is really important, that the Pharisees feel like they're one group, of, they're one of group four, group four groups in, in uh, Israel at this time, and they feel like that the problem is that our exile, the reason we're occupied by Rome, is because we have all sinned. The nation has sinned. And for us to get holy and righteous will provoke God to return and end the exile and restore Israel to its proper place. And, and he will be king and he will come and dwell with us. So they need to get people to be right, to do good, to be holy, to be pure. And so they, they take these, these uh, traditions very, very seriously. And they take the, the interpretations of their ancestors very seriously and the law very seriously, the fast and the feast and all these things. And they're trying to get other people to do it so that God will say, okay, I'll come back. In other words, they're trying to do all these things to provoke God to act. In other words, righteousness and holiness is simply a means to an end. They're more concerned about the end rather than the means, rather than the holiness. And there are other groups in, in Israel at this time. The Sadducees, they're the ones who say, well, let's just cooperate with Rome. That's probably the best thing we do. We can live and let live and let's survive. Let's work with Rome. And then you got the Essenes who kind of who separated themselves from everybody else. They said, we're going to separate ourselves and we're going to be holy. And then when, when Yahweh does come back, he'll wipe out everybody else, but he'll save the faithful remnant. And then you got the Zealots, the terrorists, who said, no, we kick Rome out with violence. And even if it means you know, sneaking up to officials, Roman officials, and stabbing them, and then sneaking away. So those are the basic four groups. But the Pharisees are saying, no, we got to get people right. we got to get people good so that Yahweh will come back. And it's kind of, that's their whole purpose. So when we look at this passage, this 16, verse 28 through 28, chapter 2, it's easy to look at it on our level and look at it and say, oh, it's this debate about grace and law. It's this debate about are we saved by grace or saved by law? Or we can look at it and say, oh, they're arguing about what role the law has to play in Christianity, and it's this theological debate. I can guarantee you that the church who was receiving this letter, this, this gospel, the first church to receive this in Rome that Mark's writing to, I can guarantee you they are not embroiled in a debate on grace and works. It's just not there. They're worried about something else. They're worried about what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it look like? How do we do it? What do we do with it? It's not some theological debate that we like to think it may be. It's how do we follow. So I think this passage is actually about discipleship. It's about what do we do? How do we follow Jesus Christ? What do we do? What does it mean to be an apprentice? What does it mean to be somebody who is a companion of Jesus Christ? And when you look at it carefully and not just read it superficially, when you look at it carefully, you see that theme repeat over and over and over again. In these verses, it's just, what, 14 verses? Seven times he mentions disciples. Twice he mentions companions, David's companions. So in these 14 verses, nine times Mark mentions disciples and companions. This is his topic. This is his theme. This is what he's looking for. 
this is what it's all about. How do we follow Jesus? How do we become disciples? What is the purpose but to encourage the disciples? So Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Because everything focuses in on who Jesus is. Every single one of these episodes reveals an aspect of Jesus. They're saying the company you keep is all wrong. And Jesus comes back and says Jesus is the physician. The traditions you keep are all wrong. And Jesus is presented as the bridegroom. And then finally the rules you keep are all wrong. And Mark presents Jesus as the Lord of the law. The Lord of the Sabbath. So this is all about following Jesus, and the whole focus is on the person of Jesus. It's all about discipleship. Is this person worth following? And Mark is telling this church in Rome is that, yes, he is. And furthermore, Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. He's the one we want. He is the one we get. So the first one... The first one is, the, is verses 16 through 18, 16 and 17. And Jesus is eating, and the disciples are eating with sinners and tax collectors. And these Pharisees, these scribes who also happen to be Pharisees, these experts of the law who also kind of want to do the, the hyper-purity thing, they come and say, and they ask the disciples, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? Now, why did he ask the disciples and not Jesus directly? I think he's trying to discredit Jesus. It's not, that they're, not enough that they're concerned about what Jesus is doing. It's that they're concerned about these people who are following him. And I think they want to discredit Jesus before the disciples. You want, to be, you want to be holy? You want to talk about the kingdom? Well, then why is he doing that? Why is he eating with sinners and, and tax collectors? And I mentioned last week, tax collectors have this terrible reputation. Okay? Probably Levi was at one of those custom booths when, the, when some were coming from, from the, the region of Philip and they were entering Antipas, the region of Antipas in Galilee, and they have to pay customs. Well, they have a terrible reputation. They were economically secure, but they were totally exiled from the community because, one, they work for a traitor. They're traitors. They work for the, the opposing government. And, two, they're dishonest as all get out. You know, they charge a lot more than they should, and they're getting rich. And Jesus is eating with these people. And he's eating with sinners. Who are the sinners? Probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Jews who don't really care that much about the law and Gentiles who don't even know what the law is all about. And Jesus is hanging out with them. And they're trying to say, this is where your guys are heading. This is where your guys are leading. This is what your guys are doing. And Jesus says, no, this is my vocation. It's not just passing the time. This is what I was called to do. This is what I was sent to do to be a physician. You don't sick people, only sick people go see the doctor. And he says, I am here as the physician. And I am here to call the sinners, not the righteous. And what I think he's doing here is he's saying, I'm here to call the sinners. And probably to the Pharisees, I am here to call you as well. I'm here to heal you. 
I don't think he's saying the, the Pharisees are righteous and therefore they don't need the physician. I think he's saying that they just don't know they need the physician because later on he calls them whitewashed tombs. They're, they're all nice and pretty on the outside, but they're decaying on the inside. And he says, I'm here to be a physician. I'm here to heal. It's me. I am the physician. This is my vocation. And this is what Jesus' people do. They hang out with sinners. They hang out with everybody else. Basically, it's what Jesus is saying is disciples of, of my disciples, my followers, are sinners who follow me, who hang out with sinners who don't yet. That's basically what it is. And that's what we are called to do. And I was just, I was not too long ago talking with a, a dear, dear sister in our congregation and she was telling me she's got to know so many non-Christians. And she said, it is so fun. It is just so, it is such a pleasure. He said, it's safe. I can talk to them. They're, they're, they're enjoyable. And she says, it's this really wonderful thing. And I think we really need to understand what does this look like for us today to hang out with sinners. As sinners who know Jesus with the sinners who don't yet. What does that look like? What does that look like in a country that is multiracial, multicultural, multireligious, democratic? What does that look like for us? What does that look like for us here in the gorge? That's what we are called to do, to hang out with them. The second question has to do with the tradition. They're saying, well, the disciples of the John and the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast, but you guys don't. How come? These things were very important. These traditions were very important because it tied them to the past. The Jews and the, Spirit and the Pharisees, they, they fasted for special reasons. They fasted weekly, but they also seasonally. And it was always to mark a time in Jewish history. Usually a time of mourning, a time of lament, a time when the, when the temple was destroyed. And they fasted to mark those times. And Jesus is saying, you're tied to the past. He said, this is... This is new. The bridegroom is here. And you think that the bridegroom's here? How are we not, not going to have a party when the bridegroom's here? We're going to have a party. We're not going to fast. And he's, what he's saying is that something new is breaking in here. It's breaking in. And, and I know anything new is shocking, okay? We all know this. Anytime you want to make changes and do something new, it's shocking. And Jesus is saying something new is happening here. The kingdom is inbreaking here. And it's inappropriate to try to connect it to the past, to try to connect it where, try to measure, marry the two things together. And he says, I'm, I'm the bridegroom. And what I love about the, the New Testament, that is probably the most common metaphor that Jesus uses for the church and the Savior is a bridegroom and a bride. And it's not unusual because Yahweh used that in the Old Testament. Yahweh was considered the bridegroom to marry Israel. And now Jesus carries it through and he says he's the bridegroom. So what is he saying? This is Yahweh visiting. This is an inbreaking of the kingdom. This is something new. The New Testament carries it through. Just look at the Revelation. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be a huge party. And he said, this is brand new breaking in. And I know this is shocking, but you can't marry the two. You can't combine the two. It's like taking a new piece of cloth and sewing it on an old shirt. 
And when it shrinks, it's going to rip the thing to shreds. You don't do that. He says it's like taking new wine and pouring it into old wineskins, and when it starts to ferment more, it's just going to rip the wineskins all up. You pour it into new wineskins. And he says, I know this is new. I know this is challenging, but this is what it is. It is new. It is in-breaking. It is life-changing. It is history-making. But it does have a shadow side. He said there will be a time when the, when the bridegroom will be taken, and in that time, it will be a time of mourning. And sure enough, when we get through the end of the book, it looks like everything's going terribly wrong. Jesus is arrested, convicted, and executed. And that is the shadow side. But we also know the victory on this side. But that's, I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is a shock. This is a shock to him. But no matter how good and how great those things are, the feasts, the dietary laws, the traditions, the, 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 the Sabbath, all those things, how great they, those things are, they are inadequate compared to what Jesus is doing now. And then the third question has to do with the rules. And Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields and they're breaking off snaps and, and eating because they're hungry and rubbing the, the grains together and eating. And the Pharisees see them and, of course, they accuse them, you're doing this wrong too, you're breaking the Sabbath, you're breaking the rules, you're breaking the law. Now, my question is, <clears throat> why, are these why are these Pharisees stalking the disciples? Why are they stalking Jesus? I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I don't have reporters and photographers stalking me uh, I'm just not that interesting you know but you take somebody in the public eye who says some things suspicious and you can bet that there will be tons of journalists and lots of photographers there to try to investigate what's going on so if Jesus was just another religious teacher he wouldn't be that interesting but there's something else going on there is a kingdom movement in Galilee and so the Pharisees come up from Judea into Galilee to investigate. Because when you've got a kingdom movement, you've got you to know, is this thing for real? Or is it getting out of hand? And so they're there to investigate, and they think it's kind of getting out of hand because they're breaking the Sabbath law. And Jesus says, don't you know I almost feel like this is a little jab into them when he says, haven't you read the Bible? You know, haven't you read the Old Testament yet? Or haven't, not the Old Testament, but haven't you read your Bible? You should know the story about David. And David in this scene, he was already anointed as king, but he's not enthroned. He was working for Saul, but there was a falling out, and now he's kind of running, and he has companions with him, and they enter the temple, and they're hungry. And so, as the king, he has the right to set it aside and eat the bread. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I have been anointed, my baptism. I'm not enthroned yet, but I have the right to oversee the law. In other words, people come before the rule. And he says that again in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the question for the disciples in Mark that Mark is talking to, including us, is in this new age, in this new kingdom, in this new thing that Jesus is doing, are we going to harm or are we going to save? Are we going to do good or are we going to do evil? That's the question. 
And even if it, obey, even if it breaks a rule, we'd always do good. That people trump the rule. People are more important than the rule. And sometimes we choose the people over the law. Sometimes we do that. That's what he's doing. He's not out to get people in line so God can act. God is acting. And the question is, are we going to join him or not? Are we going to participate or not? Are we going to be a companion or not? That is the question. And just like the church in Rome that received this gospel, gospel book, I'm sure there are a lot of people in Rome asking, why are they doing what they're doing? And they can come back and say, because this is what Jesus wants us to do. And I think we should have that same kind of experience that people should be asking us, why are they doing these things that they're doing? And it should be because they are good. That they are becoming good. That they are becoming good from the inside out. And this is, the, this is the culture that Jesus is creating. We have two competing visions for the people in this story. One from the Pharisees and one from Jesus. Two different cultures that are creating. One of the things that's helpful when you're reading the Gospels is to find the corresponding passages in the other Gospels because they kind of add, they kind of fill each other in. And this story is also recorded in Luke and Matthew. And in Matthew's version, he goes on to teach, Jesus goes on to teach quite a bit. But he closes out this teaching by saying, Matthew says, he was filled with compassion because the people were like sheep without a shepherd and they are helpless and harassed. Mark doesn't actually say that here, but putting these three stories together, I think that's the vibe that I get. That Jesus and the disciples are being are helpless and harassed. And you kind of get that feeling that we are sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. The gospel story is one that is of, of healing and renewal. The Pharisee story is one of helpless and harassed. The culture that the Pharisees want to create, that they end up creating, to me, is this culture that's sad and stingy and scared. And the culture that Jesus is creating is one of people who are changing to good from the inside out. That they are healed and that they are renewed. That's the gospel story as opposed to the pharisaical story. So instead of a creating of the culture that is helpless and harassed, Jesus is creating a culture that is a culture of people who are healed, who are renewed, and who are good. And I mean good because in the true sense of the word, not in the self-righteous kind, but in the true sense of the word, that we do good for people, do good for things. So we have these two categories of Pharisees and all the categories that they put on people, the sinners, the, the tax collectors, the, the lawbreakers, the rule breakers, the, the tradition deniers. But none of those categories are good for human flourishing and they're not good and they're not good at impressing God. God is not impressed by this at all. 
that the kingdom is populated by people who follow the Jesus way. The good, the changed, not the people who want to decide who's in and who's out, who's doing it right, who's not doing it right. People who enjoy hanging out with other, other sinners. <laughs> that there's no need to take a new patch and sew it on an old, an old clothes or take a new wine and pour it into old wineskins. It's just not appropriate. It doesn't work. Human needs come before the rules. The law was made for people, Jesus said. And in this position, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I get to choose. I get to decide. The lies of the Pharisee that we have today are not a whole lot different. The people who are pointing it out to us, you know, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. And it's perfectly natural for us to take our experience, our laws, our point of view, our viewpoint, and make that exclusive and make that the viewpoint, the law, the way to do it. But that's the lie of the Pharisee. The Pharisees, I, I, call, it, I call it theological Darwinism that only the, the totally fit get to survive, the ones who do it all right. But when we take, start taking our experience and making it the same and making it exclusive, and you have to do it this way, or you're not saved, or you're not a true Christian, or you're not an obedient Christian, or whatever, that's the lie of the Pharisee. And it's perfectly natural for us to do that, because we had an experience with a liturgy or a scripture or an author or a friend or, or maybe a song or whatever, and we want to make that ready for everybody. Everybody has to do it this way. That's theological Darwinism. That you only survive, the fittest only survive. That's the lie of the Pharisee. My story, <clears throat> and I've shared this before, that several, many years ago, now, I used to say several years ago, now it's like a couple of decades ago, um, I went through a spiritual crisis. Uh, my wife did too. We were, we were missionaries. Good grief, you know. How do you be a missionary and start doubting your faith? But we did. And we went through this really incredible um, kind of a, kind of a uh, crisis and I've mentioned before that I grew up in a Christian home that I can't even hardly remember. I can't remember not ever believing in Jesus. But I went through a, uh, I went with a friend. A friend invited me when I was in sixth grade to his Baptist church. And uh, the, the preacher was fantastic. I was only 12 at the time, I guess. And, uh, but they told me that I wasn't a true Christian because I had never walked the aisle said the prayer, and quote-unquote accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And so I, good night. I don't want to go to hell. I better do that. So I did it. And uh, came back, and I told my mom and dad, and, and they, all, they, they were wise. They knew what was going on. And they, they said, that's good. That's great. You know, it's public. But, Tommy, you've always believed as long as you've been a child. You know, you really have. And I go, yeah, I know. But the guy said, I had to do that. Yeah. And he, they said, yeah, well, that's fine. But you just, you made it public. And so that's how I look at it today. 
It was the time when I made my faith public, which is fine. And then we got to get into this, this uh, wanting to grow. And, and our youth group went to, you know, some of you know Bill Gothard's seminars. We went to the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. And, and it was all this stuff of, of hierarchy. And so you want to fit into the hierarchy. And your job is to get into where you are and so that you, you obey and you, you, you obey the authority. And they tell you how to, how to become the perfect child for the perfect parents and how you have the perfect marriage. And you do this and that. Your kids will be perfect. And and all this, and this was all, this is kind of what we were getting into, and and kind of got into that, and okay, we want to do it right, and then it kind of became, when it became evident that that Sue and I were only going to have one child, it's like oh, we've got one chance to make the perfect kid, you know. And I got to feel, and the, the, my question was back in those days, back when we were in in Mexico, or was how could I be looking for a savior? and end up in a box because that's what it felt like that I was looking for this radical savior and I wanted salvation and I ended up in a cage how did that happen because I believed the lies of the Pharisees I believed the wrong story I believed that I was scum I believe that my body is awful and that um, I can't wait to shed this meat suit and everything in the world is going to burn anyway, so why bother? And uh, all this stuff was going on and I thought, this is really a dark path. This is really a dark box. And it can even go back even worse. It didn't get that bad for me. But it can go even worse. Where you find people damaging their bodies, self-harm. My daughter sees it every single year. I saw it in one of my missionary interns who was anorexic and cutting herself. Committed Christian, but thought she was scum. And I've seen that happen, that dark path. But as co-followers of Christ, you know, I, I want to urge us to walk out of this, to get out of this box, get out of this cage. Every single gospel uses the, the figure of speech or the figure, the word picture of Jesus being a door or a gate. And I kind of had this idea that I'm supposed to leave the decadent world behind me and enter into the gate where it's nice and safe and secure. But when Jesus talks about the gate, we forget that it swings both ways. And I don't think he's off telling us to get out of the decadent world and get into this sheep pen so that we'll all be safe. I think he's opening the gate and say, enjoy the pasture. Enjoy the pasture under the protection of the shepherd. And I think that's where he's calling us to be. Open the gate. Get out into the pasture. What if that's where the gate swings? In freedom under the protection of the shepherd. The spiritual life is not about finding the right box or a bigger cage. It's just being free to enjoy the pasture with all the other sinners and be in companion with Jesus Christ. When we look at heaven as the goal, that's the one thing we're looking for. 
Heaven is the goal. We're using Jesus as a means to an end, just like the Pharisees. What Jesus is offering is himself, the physician, the bridegroom, and the Lord. That's what he offers. He is the end, not the means to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the Savior. We are thankful for visiting us and redeeming humanity. Father, help us to fall in love with you. We want you. We thank you for renewing us, for freeing us, for saving us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.